Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. On 3CR Radio. Now, um, thank you in, in Psychedelia. Uh, I'm Taz. And I'm Iris. We'll be your hosts for this week's show. Um, before I begin, uh, I'd like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation as the owners of the land on which we are meeting and broadcasting from today. We pay our respect to our elders past, present and future and extend this respect to our Indigenous listeners as well. This land was never ceded and the processes of colonization, incarceration and genocide that began over two centuries ago continue to this day. And I hope we can continue to reflect on this throughout the show as well as, well, um, as in our everyday practice. Stay tuned for an interview with Sasha and Dominic from the Aboriginal Sexual Health Podcast, and later a conversation with Fafafine storyteller, activist, and performer Amal Lutalu. So I'm joined on 3CR Community Radio Queering the Air with Dominic Herrera and Sasha Smith from the Ash Podcast, which is the Aboriginal Sexual Health Podcast. How are you going today? Hello, I'm good. Hey, I'm good as well. Um, and today is the seventh of. September, so this will be on air at a later date. Um, and you were just you just had a um, emerging writers festival event with new like interviewing new like chatting with Nuka. Yeah, how are you after it? Tired. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But um, it, it was really good. We were very, uh, I was really happy with it, and yeah. um, Nuka was a champion, mm-hmm. and so open and honest and sharing, which I loved. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it covered a lot of things from a lot of the theme was around sex, love, and pleasure or something. That's what came up a lot when I was there. I was slightly couldn't find RMIT venues. Yeah. But I made it um, <laughs> in the end. So definitely check that out because that'll be probably out by the time this goes to air. Yeah. Um, I think, yeah, it will go. We will put it up on our podcast channel. And I think mm-hmm. Melbourne Writers Festival will have theirs as well. Yeah. And. Yeah. Yeah, it'd be great for people to listen to and um, and listen to Aboriginal people speaking about sex and uh, in an open and honest way. Mm-hmm. Mm. Could you tell listeners a bit about yourselves? Uh, my name. Oh, well, I got introduced. I'm Sasha. <laughs> um, I'm a Bowen Dick woman. Um, I currently live in Adelaide, um, and I work as a sex worker, and I have for like four years now. Yeah, I know. <clears throat> Sorry. <laughs> I'm Dominic uh, Guerrero and I'm not in Jedi in Ghana, uh, an Italian person. And uh, yeah, I live in a small town called Two Wells, north of Adelaide, and um, queer identifying as well. And mm-hmm. I'm very lucky to have worked in Aboriginal health for 15 years now um, in and around sexual health and other harm minimization type work. Yeah. Mm. How did you both get into being passionate about Aboriginal sexual health? Um, I think, like, sexual health um, is closely related with, like, a lot of sex workers. Um, You know, sexual health is an important factor of sex work. So I think just after working for a while, um, yeah, I just became passionate about it because, you know, sexual health affects... Uh, being able to work as a sex worker so yeah mm. well you have to like look after your sexual exactly to be a sex worker. Yeah. so it's like yeah the mm-hmm. way that a singer has to look after their throat mm-hmm. yeah 
Um, I got into, well, like my origins of sexual health start in high school, uh, in health classes, was really interested in it, uh, particularly around um, HIV, knowing that that was something um, that, although it was not a part of my identity as a gay man, but it was something that was, you know, I knew was important for me to know about. Um, also, like visiting Aboriginal health services that my, my mum worked in, like Nakurangunti in Adelaide, and seeing the, the desks of the sexual health workers and just mm-hmm. being like so immersed in all these beautiful postcards and imagery and just had a real intrigue around that. And um, I started off working on a clean needle program, which meant we also were in charge of handing out the condoms. And I was like always like more interested in handing out the condoms than the needles. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, so then I, I eventually, you know, a job came up at um, Shine SA, which is the, the family planning of South Australia and became an Aboriginal workforce educator there. So that's my journey into sexual mm-hmm. health. Awesome. Um, so your podcast now is over eight months old. What are some of the things you've learned since then? What are some of the things you're most proud of? I've learned that Aboriginal people want to listen and engage in conversations about sexual health mm-hmm. um, and sexuality and sex. And we also that we have many different angles that we can come to sexual health. So it's very nuanced it's very uh, our sexuality and sexuality is, is just as nuanced as anyone else's in fact probably more in some ways and that every aboriginal person i feel like can, can there's a conversation that we could have like we could have any aboriginal person on our podcast and there's a conversation around sex sexuality sexual health that we could have with them um yeah mm. and i and i look forward to like doing more of them mm, yeah absolutely yeah, yeah i Completely agree with all of that. Um, yeah, and just for me personally, it's um, like a platform to, I guess, the further along I go, the more comfortable I get with myself and being able to, to talk about those things. Um, yeah. Hmm. yeah. Yeah, it's, it's different because, like, your mm. line of work is, like... Is still, there's still, like, a lot of stigma um, mm. attached to it. So, um yeah, I mean, I've only been out as a sex worker to my family um, in the last year um, with my friends. It's been a few years. But, um, yeah, so there are still, like, a lot of negative stereotypes around uh, working in the sex industry that, um, yeah, that I have to and to, it's still to tackle. Illegal. Mm. Yeah, it's still illegal yeah. in South Australia where we live. Um, so, yeah. Mm. Where, like, I'm paid to talk about sex. Mm-hmm. So this is something I'm like yeah. comfortable doing. Mm-hmm. So it's this interesting dynamic yeah. between us. Yeah, and, and like, you know, I'm always uh, wary of what I can say because a lot of um, a lot of talking about sex work can be, like, criminalising, mm. especially when you live in places where it's still illegal. So, yeah. Yeah, which is most states in Australia, except New South Wales to some extent, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so it's... Just, Really important issue to support, like the decriminalization of sex work. Which mm-hmm. Definitely check out the Ash podcast for a whole episode on that. And mm. yeah, um, yeah, just hearing you speak, um, your podcast is like a collaboration between the both of you. What's the significance of 
friendships in your life and also how does it play out in your podcast? <laughs> um, well, I mean, a, a lot of it's very, like, we record on my bedroom floor. Um, you know, it's really just com- a conversa- conversations between two friends. Um, we kind of just, we plan a little bit, but it's kind of, you know, the goal is just for it to flow naturally just two conversations between two friends. Um, mm. Yeah. And, like, people, when they see our scripts, and I put that in air quotes, they're really shocked at how little we actually pre-plan. Mm-hmm. And, I th- and I think that also we didn't really know each other that well. Yeah. The second time we met, because I had purchased all the equipment to, because I always wanted to do an Aboriginal sexual health podcast and it'd be very independent. So I purchased all this equipment and I started actually interviewing people in Adelaide around, you know, just doing interviews. But mm-hmm. it just wasn't what I wanted it to be. And then a mutual friend kind of like had already introduced us and then was like, oh, you should get Sasha on to interview them. And so I interviewed Sasha. And then, you know, like I was speaking to that mutual friend and was like, no, like, I want this to be more. I want this to mm-hmm. be bigger than it is, like than just me talking to people. Um and they suggested that Sasha be a co-host. And I was like, yes, of course. And then, and we kind of then have built the French, our friendship yeah. as we've built the, the podcast mm-hmm. together. Yeah. And I think that's evident in how much, how much we actually share at the beginning to how yeah, much we're exactly. sharing now. Yeah, exactly, mm-hmm. yeah. And how we are more open with each other. Yeah, I mean, because I'm a very shy person. So I was, I think you can hear in the the earlier episode, you can hear as the podcast goes along that I get more comfortable mm. sharing things and talking to to someone I didn't really know in the beginning. Um, <laughs> yeah, so. And yeah. also we had to find our own rhythm mm-hmm. for yeah. the podcast. And we're st- I, th- I feel like we're still finding it. Yeah. And like this kind of, the doing the live show here kind of marks the end of phase one that we were kind of mm-hmm. calling it. Yeah. It's like the Marvel Cinematic Universe. <laughs> um, and you know, when we go back to Adelaide, we're doing a lot of brainstorming and reworking the podcast to be a little bit more consistent mm-hmm. um, and just tidy it up a little bit. Because we've gone from doing 40-minute episodes to two-hour yeah. <laughs> episodes. <laughs> and it's like, it's like okay, we there's stuff to, that we want to speak about, but it's okay to like, leave it for the next episode mm-hmm. or whatever. I mean, yeah. And yeah, edit stuff out and bring it back later. Yeah. Um, yeah. One of the strengths like listening is the conversational nature of it. It's not like heavily, pre- like it's not like, and through the conversational, like a lot of humor comes out of it. And I was mm-hmm. like thinking about, yeah, what's the role of humor in your life? Gosh. I think it's a survival tool yeah. for us as Aboriginal people mm-hmm. to um, be able to laugh at things. Yeah. And that keeps kind of hope and mm-hmm. being able to wash, well, not wash away trauma, but like being able to work our way through trauma. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. It's one of the tools. And I think that's one of the things about sexual health is that there's a lot of trauma for Aboriginal people because our bodies and our reproductive systems particularly were targeted in invasion. Mm-hmm. And um, and I think that, you know, there's a lot that we have to unwind. And, uh, you know, 
it's funny how like you and Nuka in the talk today both talked about not changing in front of uh, mm-hmm. uh, other white young um, yeah. people, mm. and like that you know, didn't grow up <laughs> in the same you know, yeah exactly communities. Yeah. Well, actually, did for a little while. Yeah. <laughs> And that you had these similar experiences. Mm-hmm. And that I think that that's something that's very common across the whole continent yeah. for us as Aboriginal people. Sorry. Yeah, no, I absolutely agree. I don't really have anything to add. I think, um, yeah, you nailed it. Yeah. Mm, what is? Have you faced any challenges in making a podcast? You talked about some technical stuff you've learned. Yeah. Any other challenges? Um. I think like learning about um, not relying on people is one big thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but I think the the most important one is like is learning to balance conversation with that technical stuff. So the technical doesn't interrupt the conversation and the natural mm. flow, while also the um, the conversation doesn't hinder you or spend you know because sometimes you can spend a very long time editing a podcast so if an episode is 40 minutes it sometimes takes double that time to edit it Mm -hmm. because you have to listen to the whole thing yeah and so having the time to do that and be dedicated to it is is very hard and social media as well Mm -hmm. having to learn that and navigating that is hard Mm. sorry (laughs) That's all right. Do you have anything to add? Um, just with like, uh, yeah, like doing like promo stuff for ourselves, um, you know, having to piece together graphics for like new episodes. Neither of us, neither of us really have any experience in that. And a lot mm. of it is just making it up as we go along. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Very do it yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. What are some of the other podcasts you've li- been listening to or really like? Uh, Bro Originals, um, two Aboriginal, what? No, fine, because they're not, sorry. (laughs) Uh, two (laughs) Aboriginal fellas out of, like, Sydney, I think they're from. Um, yeah. Um, there's Pretty for an Aboriginal, which was, uh, Nikia Louie and Miranda Tapsell's podcast. I'm not sure if they're still doing it, but Mm. I don't think so. But, um, yeah. And then other than that, I just kind of listened to... Um, a lot of like supernatural mystery podcasts and like history podcasts. I like that kind of thing. Yeah. But, yeah. Um, I've started listening to All My Relations, which mm, is to yeah. um, Native American yeah. um, people uh, doing a podcast. And they cover, it's a lot more curated and a lot more like edited. Like they kind of, they mm. even though they have conversations, yeah. and it kind of centers a lot around academia, but I still think it's very accessible. Um, I also uh, have an obsession with American politics, so I listen to a lot of um, podcasts around uh, American politics, but also Feminist Frequency Radio is a great show. Um, Anita Starsiki, I can't pronounce her name, she was the um, Gamergate, was involved in that and kind of exposing the misogyny on her YouTube channel and um, the backlash that she experienced. But her her radio show or podcast, uh, she has two co-hosts, a a trans woman and an African-American woman, and they just talk pop culture. And they will 
they're very honest and they talk over each other and I just kind of love it. And mm. I don't even agree with them half the time, but it's just, I feel like I'm a part of that conversation by listening to it. Mm-hmm. But yeah. Um, yeah. I'll shout out. Uh, hey, auntie. Yeah. yeah. There's, so there's Hey Auntie Podcast or Hey Auntie Pod, um, which I think is out of Melbourne. Um, yeah. yeah. And then there's Wild Black Woman Women, which is oh out of God, Brisbane. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's my favorite show. Um, that's, uh, yeah, a radio show. Um, but yeah, like strong, strong black women. Yeah. Just talking. Talk <coughs> Angelina and uh, Angelique Chelsea. and Chelsea Bond. Yeah. It's incredible every friday they put their show out and they just really speak truth mm-hmm. and they're amazing uh, smart articulate but just also like they're for the people and i i you can't uh yeah i just love that i also mm-hmm. there's another podcast that i listen to called um nancy and it's by wnyc studios so it's an american show um and they kind of just talk about, I don't know, like random things each mm. episode, but they kind of like go into like great depth about it. And this is, it is quite random what they talk about, but um, yeah, I'm always intrigued to see what they come up with. Mm, awesome. Um, some really great recommendations there. Um, just changing to different area. I was... Wondering, what do you love about being queer and how does that inform your worldview? I love being queer because... I don't want to center my answer around being because it's different to something else, but rather that there is something in queerness that is just central that I just love. I don't know. I just love being queer. I love that that is who I am and it's a part of my life. And however that came into my life, I don't know how, but it did. And it's just, yeah, I couldn't see myself living any other way and being any other way. Yeah. And especially, you know, being a queer Aboriginal person and how do I navigate those two kind of identities and existence? But really, they're not two. They're one because it's queer mm-hmm. Aboriginal. It's not, you know, I'm because it's 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 within me. It's it's mm-hmm. one identity, which is me. But I don't know. Yeah, it's just, I think it's a beautiful thing. And yeah. Yeah, I mean, I don't think that I've thought about it too deeply beyond I just like girls. (laughs) Like, yeah, I don't really, yeah, I don't know. I don't really have an answer. I I don't think that I've thought about it too deeply. I don't, I feel a lot of white queer spaces um, are not really inclusive of, Mm. you know, being gay and Aboriginal in my experience. I haven't really you know, gelled too much into that community. So, um, yeah. Yeah, we're, like, burdened with the responsibility of mm. holding one community accountable for homophobia and transphobia mm-hmm. while also holding another community accountable for their racism mm-hmm. and transphobia as well in the fucking queer community. But mm. um, And how do we 
you know, navigate that and um, be able to in, exist and enjoy those communities. But then also about forging our own. And I've been really strong on that and thinking about that in Adelaide. Um, how do I create Aboriginal queer spaces? And um, bringing, I really want to bring about a collectiveness of, of queer and Aboriginal people. And, you know, I've got some, I'm always busy with projects. I'm always doing things. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I want to create that space um, for our community. And I think it's a responsibility, you know. Mm-hmm. So it's not just focusing on those Aboriginal people who aren't queer and then those queer people who aren't Aboriginal. It's also focusing on us that are Aboriginal and queer mm-hmm. and doing something about that. Yeah. Mm. What is... This is a big question. What are some of the big social and political changes you'd like to see right now? Uh, decriminalization of sex work, Yeah, for one. <laughs> um, we still have to roll back um, the panic defense in SA. Oh, absolutely. The decriminalization of, um, well, moving termination of pregnancy from criminal law to medical law. Mm-hmm. Um, I also want to see uh, treaty... Yes. I uh, and I want to see that's in white law, in Aboriginal law and in Aboriginal mm. culture. I want to see the evolution of new culture around Aboriginal queerness. I want to see the acceptance and the incorporation of trans people into men and women's business. I want to see, um, yeah, I want to see all Aboriginal people being accepted and included in Aboriginal cultural practices. And if it's not happening now, it will when I'm an elder. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. you know, that's the, the beauty of moving forward as yeah. in, into those positions is looking around and seeing where there's a lack of progress and where we need to... Well, not progress, because I think that's a very white concept, but inclusion mm-hmm. and and inclusion of new culture and how that fits into Aboriginal spaces. Mm. And I think that there's a lot of communities with brother boys and sister girls, particularly sister girls in the NT, who are doing that work already Mm -hmm. and are actually, in some ways, you know, really, uh, I don't know. I think it comes down to the individual's particularly there's a lot of sister girls in the NT who are just saying, I am here and you will accept me because I am your family. And the courage that they have to stand up and do that is is inspiring to me to be able to do it in so-called progressive metro spaces. So, mm. Awesome. Yeah. Heavy stuff. <laughs> yeah. Um, <coughs> thought I'd ask about um, some of the things you may be watching or reading listening to that have really caught your attention recently be tv podcast i mean not with very gone podcasts um music <laughs> artists um <coughs> movies uh i'm i'm obsessed with pose at the moment i'm loving pose i think it's a fantastic piece of television and i think it is just like taking the trans story, the way we look at trans stories and trans narr- um, narratives, just 
allowed and the, the the control and input that they've allowed for trans creative people in terms of directors and writers on the show and producers like Janet Mock, that's inspiring to see. And the outcome has been, I think, one of the best TV shows of this decade. And I'm, yeah, I just love it. And that it centers queer, trans people of color. I love that as well. And I think Ryan Murphy, um, not that he's looking for congratulations, but it's good to see someone with his position of power actually, you know, using that to allow other people to kick the door in and make make those, um, make TV shows. And now Mm -hmm. Janet Mock has done a deal with Netflix. So I can't wait to see what's coming out, going to come out of that. So, yeah. Um, Yeah, I mean, I just got back like a week ago from traveling America for like two months so mm. I am not up to date <laughs> with anything um yeah so yeah I did read I an incredible to add. Oh. I've just been lis- listening and watching the the usual stuff that I have for like the last 10 years because mm. I just I haven't been home and I've just been constantly moving around so yeah yeah. I read an incredible book called My Sister the Serial Killer, uh, which was um, uh, from a Nigerian author. I, the author's name slipped my, slips my mind, but it was, it was long listed for the Man Booker Prize. And it was just incredible. And it's very fast paced. It's kind of like this pulpy um, crime novel in a way. But it's also, uh, you know, being. It, the perspective of it being written from a black woman about two sisters mm-hmm. it's incredible and you can you can read it in easily in two nights yeah it's that good <laughs> awesome um what advice would you have for other indigenous queers looking to start a podcast do it yeah absolutely <laughs> please i people there was someone said to me one time oh you know i said i, I was talking about someone else who was wanting to do a podcast um, that was similar to another podcast that I want to do, which is like storytelling around ghost stories. And someone was like, I was telling him how there was this other Aboriginal person who wants to do something similar. And they were like, oh, competition. And I was like, no, like, this is exactly what we want. Mm-hmm. We want, you know, as many Aboriginal people telling stories on multiple platforms, um, whether it be podcasting or you know, film or television, and they're not our competition. There, it's just adding to the the knowledge of stories being told and recorded, and being shared. Yeah, um, I mean, a lot of it, like it's easy to say to like queer Indigenous people, just do it. But then, mm. you know, true, <laughs> a lot of a lot of um, you know, with the equipment, um, you know, Dom purchased that all himself. You know, which can be quite expensive, and but you can get a. Uh, can we talk about in, uh, a product? Okay, Zoom. Yeah, well, I was Zoom gonna. Rec- oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> um, I was just gonna say, yeah, and then also, you know, the if you can't purchase the equipment yourself, you know, then going through like a studio, which. <clears throat> Which also can be like hard to get like access to as well, you know. But there are you know programs and like recording programs, and you know it's important just to to get out there and try a bunch of different things, and then you know things mm. can take off but see, from like, that. Yeah, and my advice is not just to the Aboriginal people who want to create uh, podcasts; it's those who have equipment, mm-hmm. so like studios, and you know especially these expensive radio. 
stations that exist allow you know aboriginal yeah. communities and other minorities to come in and use your equipment mm-hmm. to record create, their yeah, stories create those opportunities yeah for, and yeah. teach them how to use that mm-hmm. um and give them that opportunity but you can buy a little zoom recorder mm-hmm. for about 200 bucks uh, probably all, and then you can use Audacity as your editing, which is for free. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, you will, you probably have to pay sixteen dollars a month for your Spotify. I mean, not Spotify, your SoundCloud subscription to keep up your content, keep it up on online. I just recently was at uh, the Salisbury Riders Festival in Adelaide and talking about this, and one woman was like, "Got up, she's like, I've got a podcast, and mm-hmm. but you know, I keep." Is only one or two episodes up because of my, I don't have the SoundCloud um, subscription, and mm-hmm. then, and she goes, I can't afford it. I can't afford the extra sixteen dollars a month. And this is where viewers need to step. I mean, viewers. This is where listeners need to step in if they can and donate. You know, if everyone threw in a little bit of money, um, you can keep your favorite podcast up there if people can't afford to to host it on platforms that cost money but yeah also i mean like producers and radio stations putting the Mm. money behind that because i mean yeah you know if like you know a lot of the listeners aren't you know don't have access to a lot of funds either but still well i mean and one thing is like if people can afford 50 cents a Mm -hmm. month yeah exactly and you get you know, 32 people mm-hmm, doing that. True. That's the subscription to keep that podcast up. Mm-hmm, yeah. But mm. the other thing is, is that we need, I think we need the way that we have community radio, we need community mm. podcasting mm-hmm. and we need to be able to have platforms that are government funded in a way or locally funded where people can have their podcasts hosted up online and it doesn't cost money and it's not you know that's not for someone like me who i'm happy i can afford the 16 dollars a month Mm -hmm. um but it's also about accessibility to those stories and and that's another way that we can do it and pod and that's the other thing is when you're listening to a podcast you're not that didn't take someone an hour to create that took a long time for someone to create there's a lot of free labor in that Mm -hmm. um and, you know, we're not looking for money, like, in terms of to make this into a living or something mm-hmm. like that. But there are people out there who are doing great content and throwing them some money, uh, what you can afford is, is going to be helpful. Yeah, absolutely. So don't be afraid to ask. <laughs> Try to be independent. But then also you can look for a, a, a site to host you as well. Mm-hmm. And there's some really great podcast um, platforms out there. Sorry, that was a ramble. <laughs> no, that's that's all right. Um, is there anything else you'd like to talk about or shout out to? <sighs> no. <laughs> uh, I want to give a shout out to all the Aboriginal health workers yeah. who work in and around sexual health, from research to those who take the urine samples um, and those who are, like, handing out condoms and making sure that young, the next generation are informed because we are facing a syphilis outbreak. Um, it's gone from Queensland to NT to the top of N- WA and it's now come down rural South Australia and it's reached the northern suburbs of Adelaide. And it is following 
our migration tracks. It's following where we connect as communities. And the next place it will come will be here. Because that's where we travel to as well as Aboriginal people, following mm-hmm. those tracks. And we're going to see a syphilis outbreak. And I just really hope that we don't... Um, that HIV doesn't piggyback itself on that and we have outbreaks and uh, or increase rates of HIV because we are seeing a decrease of HIV rates in men who have sex with men communities. But amongst mm-hmm. he- heterosexual and Aboriginal communities, we have seen steady numbers. So it's not an increase, but steady numbers, which shows that the work that's being done with men who have sex with men um, is working, the health promotion, the harm minimization, the messaging, but it shows that we're not doing the work in heterosexual and Aboriginal communities. And we have high, intra- high intravenous drug use, well, overrepresentation of that. We have um, uh, you know, high STI rates. These are similar modes of transmission for HIV. I'm, I'm worried. I'm I'm scared, <laughs> and so not just a syphilis outbreak, but a potential HIV outbreak. And I think shout out to the health workers who are on the front line doing some heavy lifting lifting work on you know two dollars mm-hmm. a day almost. So yeah, yeah. Mm. Get out there, get tested, <laughs> yeah. and start yeah. practicing safer sex as well. Uh, should we shout out to Vars, the yeah, Aboriginal Vars. Sexual Health Clinic? Yeah. Uh, here in Melbourne. Yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, to their sexual health team who um, get down there and go get an STI screening from them. Mm-hmm. And if you're too ashamed to go to the Aboriginal Health Service, go to GP. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> you can do it anywhere. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having Thank us. Thank you. And that was Sasha and Dominic from the Aboriginal Sexual Health Podcast. You can find the end of that interview soon at our podcast page, at 3cr.org.au forward slash Queering the Air. Next, we hear from Fafafine storyteller, activist, and performer, Amal Lutalu. Uh, hi, everybody. Uh, my name is Amal. Uh, my pronouns are she, her, and diva. Um, we'll give a little, uh, we'll give a spiel on my trip, recent trip to New York uh, during the World Pride um, events uh, to... Um, commemorate the 50th anniversary of Stonewall. Uh, I was very fortunate um, to be invited to speak at uh, one of the events, which was a human rights conference, and that had to do with rainbow families within the LGBTIQA uh, plus spaces. Um, And whilst at that human rights conference, I was able to connect with some amazing trans uh, women of colour advocates um, um, who I have idolised, who I've um, thought as great role models, uh, such as Janet Mock. And it was so amazing to be in their presence. I think for me, being there, I felt so empowered to have uh, these women of colour, these trans women of colour, coming from... Australia, where the narrative is generally a white narrative, uh, to be around my own people and to see that it's, you know, to see people living there, you know, living comfortably within their 
in themselves, being true to themselves and um, being strong about who they are, uh, you know, brought it home for me to um, be proud of who I am, to be proud of my colour. Um, uh, my background is I'm Samoan, I'm Fafa, I describe myself as Fafafine. Fafafine is a layered term. Uh, we don't have a term to desc- uh, like Western to describe certain sexualities or uh, gender diverse people. Uh, Fafafine is an LGBTI across the board uh, to describe a Samoan person that fits in that category. Um, but coming back to the trip, uh, having um, trans women of colour, especially with the way that in the last two months, you know, the deaths of trans women of colour at the moment in the US especially, um, the numbers have become, you know, have have arisen quite highly. And it's almost like a genocide. And it's so, um, for me, it's important to voice our opinions and to come back, you know, come coming back and feeling empowered by those women that I met, but um, to know that, you know, you know, trans and gender and gender non-conforming um, individuals, uh, their stories and their narratives. You know, we need to do something. Uh, this is a wake-up call with regards to. Uh, the the murders that have gone on with trans people in America, um, it's it's a genocide. It's actually a genocide to, you know, it's so sad, you know, to you know come across things on social media, you know, you know, it's just it's kind of, you know, that visibility that we want, but it comes as a double edged sword, you know, wanting the visibility yet. We're also a community that's um, liable to getting attacked, both physically, mentally and spiritually. Um, We have laws here that, you know, they're starting to talk about um, the discrimination laws. And that also affects trans and gender diverse people as well here in Australia. Um, You know, and so these, these, for me, these discussions of, um, you know, where we where we where do we fit in society as a trans person um you know having to be proactive and um advocate you know affirm our rights affirm you know where our place in society is so important um coming back my attitude from new york has been i no longer wait for the invitation to the table I've come to rearrange the table. When I mean rearrange it, arrange it so that you, where you fit in, where you can, you know, positively fit in to where you feel comfortable. If you feel that you may be a certain, you know, identify with a gender or don't um, identify with a certain gender or of sexuality wise, you find out something that fits in with you. Um, and it was, you know, um, one of the interesting things that I found when I was in, you know, I was also there for the the the, the march that they had, um, but there was also a counter march as well, uh, regard and a lot of the communities that were involved in that counter march um, to do with World Pride uh, were, you know, groups such as bisexual group, uh, pansexual beers. Um, how did I know this? They were they were proudly displaying their flags, but you know they wanted to challenge the commercialism mm. 
of things such as the as the Pride Parade. When it, you know, where are these businesses who are interested in kind of exploiting? Like I feel personally exploiting us with coming out with merchandise in this one particular instance. Yet, where are they every single year to help protect us? To help, you know, be our allies? To help, you know, give money to you know, homeless LGBTI youth, Mm -hmm. you know, trans and gender diverse people to have, you know, jobs without being discriminated. Where are these businesses? So that trip, you know, coming back to the trip to New York was an eye-opener. It was, I felt, I felt empowered by it that as as an individual from the LGBTIQA plus community that, we need to continue, you know, I, you know, people use the word fight, I use the word affirm, you know, affirming our place in society, um, that we must continue to, you know, tell our stories or have our stories. And just as I um, just recently sat with a group tonight, you know, hearing the narratives of people of colour, you know, for me is huge because that identity you know, coming into a white society is so prevalent. You know, having grown up in the 80s and not feeling, you know, feeling really disgusted in the colour of my skin, you know, thinking why couldn't I be have been born a different way or that. But realising, you know, feeling empowered to own, take ownership of my, you know, my transness, my fafafininess, my colour, my cultural identity, and being able to empower it, you know, empower myself and empower other people and be able to tell those narratives. Um, one of the beautiful things that came for me at the mar- the Pride March that I was involved was was to walk with my Pacific community, uh, uh, Utopia New York, which is these five different chapters around New York, and they are from the Pacific diaspora, mm. and it made me proud because we are we are we are yearn to seek validation here in a white society, to be amongst my own peers, to be about around my own people, is such a beautiful thing. I feel loved, I feel accepted, and I feel I can just be myself, um, and so. New York was very affirming for me. It, um, you know, I just, I came back vibing off that. But, mm. you know, those that's the positive of being around my own community, of being around my people of colour, that I'm able to have these conversations, that I'm able to share a good, you know, like sharing a meal and have a good laugh mm. and try and, you know, have that discussion of what can we do as a group of people uh, to move forward, um, you know, and set the blueprint or change the blueprint for the next generation that comes after us. And for me, that's the legacy that I'd like to leave, is that, you know, that we are able as a community at the present moment to change a bit of history, uh, to alter it, so that the future young people of colour that come after us, that they don't have to fight so hard to be accepted, to be to be able to go into these circles. Thank you so much for sharing that, Amal. I also am actually interested with what you mentioned about the five chapters 
of the uh, Pacific Diaspora Group at the New York. And, you know, that that's quite surprising because in New Melbourne, we're lucky to even have one chapter of anything. Yeah. Um, just curious along, I guess, they're organizing, yeah. how they've organized into five different chapters, for example. Are they, like, geographic or are they different arms? Yeah. Like, uh, It's different states where there is, uh, you know, communities of Pacific uh, people and um, they're quite a strong group. So we have Utopia San Francisco, uh, Utopia Portland, uh, Utopia, I think, Las Vegas, um, Utopia New York, and there's a fifth one. And that's encouraging to see those groups because, you know, when Pacific people go to those parts of the US, they know where to go with and they know that they can go and have you know, proper conversations. And it's just, you know, having that safe space and people that can identify with you. And it's so warming because they do a cultural thing where it's just, it's so natural. Like, you don't even have to force yourself into it. It's just like you feel at home. It's like hanging out with your best friends and you're sitting there having, because they understand culturally what you're about. And you're not having to put on any facade. It's just like, wow, it's another islander. They understand my sense of humour. And, we, you know, you, you, what I love is that we do a lot of laughing and eating. <laughs> you know. Sounds amazing. Um, I also, like, you know, obviously Stonewall... Um, I guess in I guess worldwide context, you know, there's a lot of American influence, so I think a lot of people would understand significance of Stonewall. Um, and you also mentioned about the commercialization, and uh, and I've only been to Melbourne Pride, so I honestly have very little reference. But I, you know, I'm I'm actually shocked that there's in New York Pride where we had Stonewall, uh, you know, which is a riot, yeah. that now that's become commercialized. Like yeah. I mean, I, I thought it was just a you know, a few cities that were like that. I didn't realize that New York, you know, New York Stonewall 50 would be like that. Could you tell me a little bit more about that? Okay, so regarding the commercialization, it was interesting because whilst I was there for the parade, I didn't realize how much there was also angst with regards to those that disagreed with you know, businesses selling their merchandises, and these weren't necessarily LGBTIQA plus businesses. These were just cisgender, white, uh, straight uh, businesses. And um, on the on the day, I think I was mentioning it before. On the day of the parade, it's on March itself. There was a counter march, and that was held in another in in the city, but not far away. And um, I was really, I was really, that really opened my eyes to the amount of people that marched in that march, but also thinking to myself, they actually have a point to prove because even today, I sit there and I think to myself, I sit there and think to myself, those businesses that came aboard to sell their LGBTIQ merchandise for Pride, where are they today? Where are they today with their money? Where are they today helping, you know, such, you know, the, you know, we've got LGBTI youth in America, homeless. Where are they provide, you know, that those businesses should be constant, if that's, if that's what they feel like, they should constantly 
giving those, you know, that monetary to those, you know, to community to help combat some of these issues. It's even like for trans and gender diverse mm. people, you know, being able to have um, employment, you know, things like... So, yeah, so, you know, when I look at the challenges of the commercialism, you know, that you know, where are they to help these other situations? I said, you know, Rome wasn't built in a day, but I just said, yeah, but that's the point. That's the point. Some of these people that, uh, you know, question, you know, the legitimacy of some of these businesses coming to the table, you know, that don't just come in, you know, come when it's all about the hype. I said, come when we, you know, we love to have you when we're struggling, when we're internally struggling with the issues. But it was a really interesting one. You know, it really made me think about, you know, like just these big campaigns you'll see people, um, you know, doing, you know, using LGBTI people to to model certain products but I just said yeah but they should be modeling every single thing you be you should be getting those people for every everything you know from selling cars to selling houses you know and if you are going to use them pay them accordingly and also um how about helping out you know the the struggling communities within that within that LGBTIQ space. Thank you so much, Amal. And also, you know, um, I also respect a lot of the work that you do. And you mentioned that you were growing up in the 80s. I don't know if that was in Melbourne, but I'm just curious because obviously it's, uh, I guess, a, maybe a different era, you can say, or or different, you know, um, situations. And, um, you know, with a lot of the young, well, I'm not, well, not necessarily young, but I feel like there's, to some level, there's a, there's a, an attitude with some people in the LGBT community where, for example, they don't seem to mind having cops in a huge, participate in a huge way in um, Midsummer, for example. And there's almost like this disregard or amnesia, like in terms of history and, you know, the struggles. And even today, like a lot of the people from uh, the original Mardi Gras riots, they would actually struggle with the past that they've had to deal with police. And also as someone maybe who um, has probably lived longer than I have, Maybe if you could share, um, you know, I know that we don't actually ask, um, I'm not sure what they're called, people who are older than us about life um, then and now. And and also they, they hold key information for youth or people who are will eventually become older. Like how do you bridge that intergenerational gap, but also maybe share from your experiences what you've observed and um, what has changed, what hasn't perhaps? Yeah. It's interesting because probably only this year in the last two years but I've actually seen it with my own eyes just how you know it actually is problematic it's problematic with having you know the police around with um with the way that they've treated our community in the past LGBTI communities and just you know they were you know like the stronghold um we had a situation in with New Zealand and um, the way their Pride event, uh, I think it was their Hero Pride or their Pride event in Auckland, and there were some discrepancies over the presence of the police. But knowing their history with communities and just um, 
um, multi-ethnic, you know, people of colour communities. And so the committee had um, asked them um, not too much in their uniform. And they disagreed with that. And they felt they took it upon themselves to pull out and there were other businesses. My point there was, you know, who are you? (laughs) You're not even necessarily part of that LGBTI community to tell us how to, you know, basically do our festival with your, you know, with your presence and just stuff like that, you know, trying to come in with a stronghold or a strong presence. I said, no, that actually scares people away. Um, You know, the way that police are with trans people, you know, trans and gender diverse communities, you know, I don't know, but I just said I would think this, the experiences that I've heard from some uh, gender diverse people have not been, um, you know, and then they want to come to our parade, you know, and kind of have this kind of this kind of power. So I see how problematic it is when, you know, the police try to come in and feel that they can have their say when I just said, no, you're actually like every other group, you know, like social group, you're part of community and we appreciate your support. However, it's our, you know, it should be our rules. And so I get, I get that. I get that, you know, yes, we'd like to go forward, but I just said, but there's so much work to do. You know, I'm also, you know, I can't speak off, but I also sense with, you know, you know, the asylum seeker LGB refugees. You know, I think the police, there would be some kind of fear, you know, with the police presence there. You know, after, you know, I just said, you know, the police presence with, you know, um, refugees and asylum seekers here. It's not a it's not a warm relationship. So, those things that we need to take into consideration, if we're talking about our our community, but our community as a whole, you know, I've heard situations where those that want to challenge those that think diff, you know, that think against it, and my my thing is that it's normally a white person that has those kind of thoughts. You know, and I said, yeah, and what has your experience been, generally speaking? You know, so, um, yeah, I, I, I do think it's problematic. I think the police have a lot to answer for. I think there needs to be a lot of healing and there needs to be a lot of talks. And I, I, I personally think that the police need to step back a bit and listen, listen to community, take on board the stuff that that makes people feel uncomfortable like with them. Like even just the fact that they want to wear their uniform, you know, and they disagree, you know, I just said, that's that's something small. Like you can actually just wear a mufti or a t-shirt, you know? Um, but yeah, I see it as I see it as problematic. And I think there's a lot of conversation that needs, but the police actually needs to, when it comes to LGBTIQ stuff. They need to take a back seat because it's not their parade. You know, it's the it's the you know it's the LGBTI community parade. If it was their parade, then do it their way. But you know, I said it makes a lot of people feel unsafe, you know? Um, but yeah. And um, could you talk to more um, also as well with the intergenerational gap 
and um, maybe also from your life experience. Um, I guess maybe in the 80s until like 2019, I suppose. Um, um, I see that there's, a, uh, with regards to uh, the intergenerational gap, um, there's a lot of connecting that needs to happen. And I see it in the general LGBTIQ spaces that I personally go into where it's very white. It's a very white narrative. And so, you know, um, you know, I think it's great having um, groups like Democracy and Colour who acknowledge that our people of colour voices are missing in that discussion. Um, you know, just... I think one of the challenges for elderly people is the change of language, you know, mm. and not wanting to, you know, sometimes acknowledge that, you know, my my thought on it is the cultural dynamics and language are going to be forever changing. You know, I see it within my own culture, Samoan culture, you know, text messaging in short format, you know, it's just... It's just the way it is. It's just, you know, with the way so you know uh, social media is now. We're seeing, you know, people. You know, it's about connections and the way people do things, and you know, we're just having to find having to find a way that have that we have to adapt. As a as a teenager that grew up in the eighties, you know, I've had to um, realize that. I've had to change certain um, things, you know, like I've had to get used to the language, like in terms of my activism. Uh, one of the things that, um, you know, is, you know, using words such as non-binary, which was a challenge because as a, as a person growing up as a gay boy back in the 80s, it was just like, if you're going to transition, you go all the way. There's no in-between. And so terminology like non-binary it didn't even exist for me, whereas now it is. You know, it's, it, it, that's an example of language. The culture dynamics will be ever-changing. I think it's up to the individual, to personally, to um, try and navigate that. Um, as an elder person, I've had to ask those questions. I've also had to inform myself. It's not easy, but I think to myself, but I'm all, the world is not going to wait for the way that you grew up, it's going to be forever changing. It's like the young people now, 40 years down the track, the, the cycle's going to change. So it's it's almost like, how can I say it? It's like a brand, like you're having to rebrand yourself every single time just to find out where you fit in, if that kind of makes sense. But the intergenerational gap is there and how you go about it. I personally, just like I said before, it's just trying to um, inform yourself, educate yourself of what's out there. Um, you know, and I, my own thing is, you know, like just with those that are the same age as myself, we have to also get with the program because I said the young people are not going to stop. They're going to continue to be up there and we just have to find a way to try and connect. I think I'm lucky in that my Samoan culture 
it's it's just a cultural thing where we see everybody as family so we look out for each other and so i'm very fortunate that you know regardless of the language changing in my own cultural dynamic in my own Samoan traditional corner uh, there will always be that respect of young person to an elder. But I see that with a lot of the other cultures as well. Uh, th- there's a respect there. Um, and I sometimes I fail to see that when I go into the, the general LGBTIQ spaces. Um, but that comes back as, you know, having those connections and having those conversations... Um, one of the beautiful things that I love is when I sit down, when I'm invited to things and young queer people of colour come up and talk to me. It's so special. It's just, you can't beat that. But it's so natural. It's not even, it's not forced. You know, and I, lo- I love that. And that's, a, that's where I think to myself, yeah, you know what? Own it. You know, and that's what I love about the young people queer people you know we're not necessarily invited to the table however so what I love about the young queer people of color is that they're going out there and they're creating their platforms hence you know the democracy and color group hence these other performers uh, uh, young queer people of color who go and do their shows and I said that's the way to go about it you know don't wait to be invited to the table you rearrange the table. You go and rearrange the table. You know, you shine that spoon, you sharpen that, that knife, and you poke. You start poking, you know, and you do your thing. That's the way to do it. Because I said, you can keep waiting for another 20 years and you still won't be invited to the table. So it's, um, you know, it's connecting with people, finding really good connections because there are some lovely people out there. Um, and finding ways to uh, do things or finding ways to work together. Um, but yeah, there's a lot, there's a long way to go. But I just think people need to be open and receptive. Uh, people uh, need to not just think about where they're coming from, but be able to listen uh, and observe. Sometimes it's always just good to ob- sit down and observe and then go okay what can I take away from that or how can I do better for myself or for my community and that's like when I go to things especially like things where the narrative is predominantly white I go to I go and listen and then I think to myself okay I disagree with that but what what can I do to better myself or better you know better the relationship that I have and then I can take it somewhere else and go, okay, community, let's go do this. You know? Thank you, Amal. And maybe last last question. Okay. Where to from here? What have what has Amal got plans for the future? Oh, there's so there's so much, so many good stuff, but it's it's just it's just trying to encourage our people of colour to you know, to stand to stand strong and be firm. And um, believe in themselves. I said, there's a reason why you're alive, you know? And just, like I said before, continue to rearrange the table, you know? <laughs> like, seriously, don't, honey, don't wait for that invitation. You come to, you come to rearrange the table. Um, but, yeah, that's my piece of advice. Just, 
you know, keep putting, you know, keep, you know, like they say, keep up the good fight. I like to think of it, keep affirming your, keep affirming, you know, just keep saying, I can, I will, I will do it, you know. Well, thank you so much, you know, for your time. And um, listeners, we'll be joined again this time next week, Sundays, uh, 3 to 4. Uh, stay tuned for the next show. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.